like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Ruthie's Table 4, a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. Last night, after dinner in the River Cafe, I sat with the chefs... Usually, we talk about the evening service, what happened, who came, what we cooked. But this time, knowing he was coming to the kitchen today, we spoke about our guest, Yotam Ottolenghi. They've all, the chefs, read his books. They've all eaten in his restaurants. And like me, love his food. In short, they were thrilled he was coming. Yatam and I were introduced years ago by a mutual friend, Ari Shapiro. Ruthie, he said, you've got to meet this guy. You think the same way, and you will adore him. Yatam and I share a lot. Most of all, we believe in the people we work with, valuing them and their creativity. We also share a kind of geography. Mine is an Italian landscape with cities of the Renaissance. His is further east, desert, mountains, and biblical. We both live and work in cultures far from where we were born. Today, we will talk about separation and connection, Eastern and Western, family and friends. Would you like to read a recipe uniquely, I would say, not from one of our cookbooks, but from one of yours? I was looking forward to reading a recipe from one of your cookbooks because they're just so much shorter. Uh, yeah. uh, famously, Otolenghi <laughs> recipes are very long. So I, I worked hard to find a short recipe. In so lo- it'll in only take 20 minutes. <laughs> yeah, right. And it's only going to have like 12 ingredients and not like 24. Okay. But this is from one of my most recent books called uh, The Otolenghi Test Kitchen Shelf Love. It's a butter bean recipe. So it's called One Jar of Butter Beans with Preserved Lemon, Chili and Herb Oil. Five garlic cloves finely chopped, two mild red chilies finely chopped, seeds and all, two tablespoons coriander seeds finely crushed with a pestle and mortar, three preserved lemons, inner parts discarded and skin finely sliced, one and a half tablespoons roughly chopped thyme leaves, four rosemary sprigs, one tablespoon tomato paste, 170 ml olive oil, one jar of butter beans, 700 grams, Two large vine tomatoes, uh, roughly grated and skin discarded, flaked sea salt and black pepper. Put the first eight ingredients and one and a quarter teaspoons of flaked salt into a medium saute pan on a medium low heat and stir everything together. Heat gently for 25 minutes until very fragrant, but not at all browned. If the oil gets too hot, turn the heat down to low. Stir in the butter beans, then turn the heat up to medium and cook for 10 minutes. Remove from the heat and leave to infuse for at least an hour or longer, if time allows. Meanwhile, mix the grated tomatoes with a third of a teaspoon of flaked sea salt and a good grind of pepper. To serve, pour the butter beans mixture into a shallow bowl and spoon over the grated tomatoes, mixing it in places. 
It sounds like a recipe that I would definitely want to make. It sounds a bit like a river cafe recipe, yeah, actually. You know, I did read that your first word was, was it the Israeli <laughs> word for Hebrew word for soup? For, was well, it? it is the, dump, the kind of the little dumplings that go into the soup. So it has the word soup in it. Yeah. yeah. It was something I think my mom used to spread on the table while we were waiting for the food, and I just used to kind of grab them and eat them. And so going back then, starting at the very, very beginning, tell me about your early childhood in in terms of food as well, what you know. So I grew up in Jerusalem, Mm. and the food in Jerusalem at that point... Can I just ask you, were your parents born in Israel? My parents were born in Europe, just before the Second World War. Right. Uh, so, and they immigrated with their parents as little kids just before the war in 1939. Mm. My mother was from a German family, so they were G- German Jews. Mm-hmm. And my father, were, they were an Italian family from Florence. Really? Yeah, so my dad was born in, in Florence. And, and they met in Israel? And they, so, yeah, they met in Israel uh, years later. Yeah, yeah. 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 And Jerusalem was, uh, so I, I grew up in a, in a very kind of a non-traditional Jewish home, mm-hmm. very secular. Uh, food-wise, like we had pork, which nobody was unheard of, you mm-hmm. know. My mom had that butcher in Jerusalem, the one and only one that sold pork, but it was under the counter in the brown bag. Uh, yeah, she used, to, <laughs> <laughs> she, used, yeah. <laughs> she used to come and buy a ham. Mm. And we used to get ham sandwiches for school, but you know we were not allowed to say what's in our sandwiches, and we were not allowed to share it with friends. So the cover story was that it was a turkey. Mm. Well, it was a very pink turkey. Brave <laughs> yeah. woman, brave woman to come from Germany. She she was from Germany, so yeah. she probably had pork in Germany. Yeah, she was not going to give that up. Yeah, yeah, they were very uh, secular, you know, mm. and so she they just had to have pork. But it was, you know, uh, the stories about these things, they sound quite, ino- you know, innocuous, but actually it was quite, it, yeah. it was a big deal. So that butcher, uh, when people found out that he, he was selling pork, you know, he'd been, his shop was vandalized and yeah. you'd have like people put like, uh, uh-huh. like glue in, in his locks so he couldn't open his, the, the shop the next day, etc. It was, in Jerusalem, food is not a neutral stance, you know, like all those decisions, all those things that happen political. have political implications. Yeah. What year would this have been? The 60s? So uh, this was so I was born in '68. So mm-hmm. we're talking about the '70s and '80s. Yeah, so as late as that. Yeah, so, yeah, 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 completely. So the food culture of the city was the food of the immigrants of yeah. from wherever they came, the yeah. Jewish immigrants, but also the Palestinian population, mm. which was so had such a rich, wonderful culinary history. And I feel that I grew up in this world in which uh, we ate very European food at home. Mm-hmm. My father was cooking traditional Italian dishes. And my mom was kind of an international cook, but with a very Germanic Mm. approach to cooking. But outside, you know, when we went out, we used to have Palestinian food, Mm. Arabic food. Mm. And that's the mix that I grew up having. And I I always thought that I was quite lucky to have had been exposed Mm. to all those kind of foods from quite a young age. Could your father find ingredients that he wanted for Italian cooking? Yeah, uh, he could. So first of all, they've had they used to have uh, food like they like I remember my grandparents because they couldn't really separate themselves from their Italian background yeah. so they used to have food sent to them so we had to we used to get like anchovy paste and olive oil and <laughs> and uh, biscuits and 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 cookies and things so they always get these packages of Italian produce that arrived and 
Parmesan. Yeah. So they lived about an hour from where we lived in Jerusalem. They lived in the suburb of Tel Aviv. And I used to come to their house as a kid with my, with my dad. And the smell was just completely different. It smelled of Italy uh, in so many ways. So they kept the Italian connection going on. And they used to, we used, they used to travel in the summer because they had a house in the hills outside Florence oh. that we used to go to when I was growing up. So yeah. we, we had a lot, of, a lot of that. So in between the Italian and the Palestinian and the German yeah. influences, I've yeah. always oh. kind of had all that. Because I often think that, well, I often say that in my history as, a, as an interviewer that many of the people, especially immigrants, uh, talk more about their grandparents' food than their parents. That if you've moved from your culture to another culture... Yeah. The mothers probably try and adapt. So if you have a family from Ghana, coming from Ghana to London, the mother would try and kind of still remember her food she grew up with, but would try to adapt. And the children completely adapted and would have the food of their friends. But the grandparents, when you went to their house, they would cook the Ghanaian food or the Italian food. Or And my mother-in-law left Italy for London um, pre-war. And her father, who was kind of Florentine, slight aristocrat, would send her candied oranges every month, you know, <laughs> that she craved those kind of Italian, the Italian yeah. food of your culture. You know? Totally. And the only difference is that in Israel at the time, there wasn't like a cuisine as such. Mm. There, it was because it was just so early on and it was just so new and so I young. Right. So a, a national cuisine has not evolved. There was a Palestinian, the Palestinian food was mm. extremely evolved, but what people would call Israeli food is something that evolved later. But mm. when I was growing up, there was the food that Polish Jews ha would, would have mm -hmm. cooked or Russian mm -hmm. Jews or mm -hmm. Libyan Jews or Moroccan Jews or Iraqi Jews. Those, each one had their own cuisine. But I always like to say, like, in Jerusalem, it was like survival of the fittest, you know, like the best food from every culture would surface. And oh, you'd have, well, that's <laughs> lucky. Yeah, that's really good. So you'd have the Sephardic and you would have so the Ashkenazi. Have, so you'd so. have the Sephardic, you know, salads and, like, yeah. and mezes, and you'd have, like, the babkas that would come from the Ashkenazi yeah, food. Yeah. And, and in some ways, like some restaurants in, in Jerusalem these days, that what, then when you go, that's what's featured, you know, like the best of every culture yeah, yeah, uh, that makes up the city. Because yeah. in America, definitely, my family, well, they were Hungarian and Russian Jews. And uh, my Hungarian grandmother was a great pastry cook, you know, she yeah. made all the strudels and all that. But I remember uh, not really liking all that sort of gefilte fish and matzo ball soup <laughs> and that, that meat they cooked for hours and those... I'm, I'm going to get in trouble for this. So I, I, should be I always... You, you're in good company. I, 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 it's fine. The Eastern European food, I always say, like, you know, I've, there is this Israeli chef called Erez Komrovsky. He's a baker and he's, he's, he's become quite well known because he's outspoken. He's one of the founders of the modern way of cooking in Israel. Yeah. He always says, in Israel, you only gefilte fish if your grandmother is still alive. Oh, really? That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. And I guess they are, but they, those grandmothers might not be here for very long now. If they, yeah. Uh, well, I th but I also think you, there's good things you can there do with gefilte fish. Yeah. Yeah. It's, and yeah. I always say there's no bad cuisines. It's just about how people how cook those, those foods. And mm. there's when I go and people say, oh, how could you... What do you like about British cooking? I say, like, there's so many great things lot. here. Yeah. And the uh -huh. desserts are, like, some of the best desserts in the world. Uh -huh. And, you know, the, 
And I think it's it really is about yeah, what I you agree. do with it, not, I not agree. how you I agree. So going back again, it seems like you had a household where food was really important. Both your father and your mother cooked? Yeah, both my parents cooked. So, uh, my father, because of this Italian uh, sensibilities, mm. he used to cook in a way that doesn't remind me of the way I cook now. Mm. So it was quite minimal, mm. great ingredients, cooked with uh, with care and attention and he used to make polenta mm. and he's just a stand there and stir it, you know, for 45 minutes or an hour until it was just right. And add, add the cheese, like, but ev- everything very kind of moderately and with a lot of attention and um, was so different from the way um, I ended up cooking, which is this kind of quite a maximalist way of mm-hmm. cooking, quite a lot of ingredients, more in, I think, more keen to maybe how they cook in North Africa or mm-hmm or in Asia, South Asia or Southeast Asia, in the sense that quite a lot of spices, cook them down, create something which is kind of a base for a sauce. He didn't cook like that. He cooked much more the Italian way. But he was a professor of chemistry at the university, so he had a really kind of a deep understanding of ingredients. Intuitive, but... Yeah. I always say that a recipe... I don't know if you agree, is part science and part poetry. Yes. You know, everybody likes the image of the Italian that throws something in and does something there and does something that. But actually, they're very precise, I think. Very precise. Yeah. But yeah. he loved food. But there's certain things he just, as, as, as like all Italians, he loved his, his food the most. Mm. And he just, it looked like there are certain combinations that he would just not have. Like he mm. said, uh, sweet and, and savory food. No, because no. he was from northern Italy. Mm-hmm. You know, that's his. Maybe in mm-hmm. Sicily you'd find there, or Puglia, mm-hmm. but not mm-hmm. in the north. So if you'd have like something Moroccan, you know, like a tagine with mm-hmm. prunes or whatever, you no wouldn't way. touch that. <laughs> and your mother, did she cook German food then? My mom cooked German food. She was more of an international cook. You know, mm-hmm. she had these international cookbooks uh, in, of the 50s, you know, and she would try like a Malaysian curry or mm-hmm. delicious gazpacho. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she was. She also was a foodie in the sense that she, that for her food was was very important. Our mo- the most important meal in the day in our house was breakfast, and we had this kind of spread of food. Again, not very Italian. Before you went to school, mostly on the weekend. But even mm. before I went to school, there was like freshly sliced vegetables, mm. fresh vegetables, and some cheese and brine. You know, like feta style and fresh bread and egg. And I, this is still what I do for my kids. Do like you? before they go to school, I give them this massive breakfast. And Carl, my husband, looks at me and says like, is that really breakfast? You know, they, <laughs> but they love it. It really is delicious. Yeah. But the whole concept of breakfast is like people, different cultures do yeah. it very differently. My, my grandchildren are half Chinese and they have chicken soup for breakfast. Every That's right. they, they can think of nothing nicer than having a bowl of soup. You know, I agree. And why not? You know, it doesn't have to when be. When I came here and I saw that grilled tomato and beans, and sausage I thought like what an abomination <laughs> I do like it now yeah you do yeah oh okay there you go. and so growing up in your did you have brothers and sisters was it I just have, you I have one sister yeah and, and so the family meal would be sitting did your mother work yeah yeah she, my yeah. mom was a teacher yeah. yeah so you would sit down to breakfast fantastic breakfast and then most dinners would you have dinner together yeah we would also have dinner together um, yeah breakfast was the main time you could trusted everybody would be there. My parents worked a lot, so dinner not always, but we also had dinners together. Do you have memories of the kitchen? Uh, yeah, we, so we had the kitchen I was growing up with was a long kind of galley kitchen with a, a dining table and chair at the very end. It wasn't fancy at all. It was very pr- practical, but there's always cooking going on. 
And it was, I, yeah, I remember it. I remember a cupboard where, where everything was, was stored. Uh, and I remember I was always to climb up the counter. I couldn't reach to get chocolate. There was a box and she didn't mind. I don't know, she, she never told us off, but we, was, we just come and had, had that cooking chocolate. Mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we start in the morning, they do all the fish mongery and all the butchery. So we start off with the meat and fish while I'm writing the menu. What's the level of butchery? Like, you get a, you get a whole pig or... or yeah, 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 or a whole, um, you know, piece of sirloin on the bone or, yeah, just legs of lamb, mm-hmm. take them all off. And the whole fish fully scaled with all the scales and everything, mm-hmm. and gut and gill and scale fish and do all the proper, you know, yeah, stuff, yeah. the skilled stuff that I suppose some... Ki- we're a busy kitchen, but we have a lot of chefs, so we do all that. Don't have stations. Don't have like, stations. No. So pe- anyone can do everything. Anything. By, by the end, of probably it take about four years to learn all the sections well. Mm-hmm. Not everyone here can cook on every section. Yeah. The pasta section is quite hard. It is hard. Yeah. So a lot of people be learning that section. Um, so the person on it today is sort of learning it. So I'll be teaching them how to, you know. And Thank you. Yeah, not at all. Did your parents take you to restaurants? Did you go out? Yeah, so we didn't ha- we didn't have um, great restaurants in Jerusalem in the sense in the way we have now. So yeah. this whole this whole revolution mm-hmm. in food has not happened yet. Um, so we ate when we ate out. We used to go to uh, Palestinian restaurants. So mm-hmm. the war just happened not long before the 1967 mm-hmm. war in which Israel uh, occupied East Jerusalem. So. Um, in some ways, this is bef- the, the pre-traumatic times. You know, it was all very new and obviously it was complicated, but it was relatively peaceful. Yeah. So I remember we used to go travel a lot into the West Bank. We used to go to Naples, to Jericho, yeah. uh, to Hebron to have meals. Wow. So we used to go to uh, Jericho and have like incredible what meals. Would you eat? Oh, we would have these spreads of delicious things that you find some of them you'd know and some of them you wouldn't. So. 
um, fr from, you know, like hummus or labine, you know, the strained yogurt, but you'd also have like local uh, herbs that be sautéed in, in garlic and olive oil. They have incredible, um, so they have wonderful oranges. So you'd have mm -hmm. orange juice freshly squeezed. Um, a bit like Seville, like they have some of them that are cooking and some of them mostly for juicing. And because it's so hot and humid, it's like perfect for, mm -hmm. for citrus and lamb on the grill. So they have to cook like, a lamb on an open grill and rice dishes like mm. makluba, like upside down rice cakes mm. and bulgur salads. And it was an olive oil, right? An amazing, yeah. wonderful yeah. olive oil, yeah. wonderful olive oil uh, and great freshly baked breads. Uh, pita breads and all and pita, and other variations on that theme because the Palestinians cook, uh, cook their bread on in a taboon, which is that you know that kind yeah. of ceramic uh, oven, or earthenware yeah. oven. Yeah. So so all that was there, and I really have really really strong memory of of yeah. driving down to Jericho, and just having all these wonderful foods and coming back, but also in Jerusalem, I have such strong memories of these of these flavors. Did you ever think that you would like to do that? Did you ever think you'd want to be a chef? No, I, I didn't really think I would want to be a chef. I really loved eating, mm. so much so that, like, my dad always used to make fun of me. He used to call me golozzo, <laughs> which yeah. is, like, Italian, Italian word. word for, yeah. like, greedy. Because yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was greedy, and I had to make them, like, take me to restaurants on my... There was one restaurant in, restaurant in Jerusalem that served uh, seafood, like shrimps mm -hmm. and, and, and squid and that. And it was in, a, in East Jerusalem in the Arab part because they were Christian Arab. I mean, Muslims can eat seafood yeah. as well. And uh, we'd go there and have like a, a plate of like um, prawns and like butter and garlic and lemon, you know, like. Mm -hmm. And I, I just thought it was the most delicious thing I've ever had. It was so yeah. exotic. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, so I, I had all really... That all that wonderful food, but I never thought I was going you to become never did. a chef. No, I kind of just assumed I'm going to follow in my parents' path. And what go, did you go, think you'd be? An academic, yeah. you know, look, go to university, study, which I did. I went to university and I studied in Tel Aviv University in the late 90s. I studied. Did you live at home while you were at university? No, I moved to Tel Aviv. I and I, so what did you eat? I, well, so I, I first apartment that I had with, with my boyfriend at the time, we lived by Carmel Market, which is the main fruit and vegetable market. So it really was a, an apartment really close to the market. And this was when the first time I started to cook because okay. I, was, I was at university. Yeah. And like and so many students, like, you know, food was not forthcoming mm -hmm. anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, exactly. I had to, <laughs> so I had to cook. And I fell in love with cooking through the market. So on Friday I would go and buy fresh herbs and, and vegetables and cheese. They had this incredible cheese stand. They had all the Balkan cheeses, you know, those sitting in brine, you know, the different types right. of feta. Right. Uh, and are, there, uh, are there many different there types are many, of There are many, many different feta. types of... Yeah. I, I use the word feta, but yeah. it's the Bulgarian cheeses. Sure. It's a whole range of, of young cheeses that they vary in saltiness and texture from something which is more like a ricotta yeah. to something much firmer. Oh, it's like a ricotta, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, you have like really, really bland, like un, with unsalted cheeses that would be used for one use and then things that are crumblier, like more like a ricotta and some are much smoother, like other Greek cheeses. And so you'd have the whole, the whole range. And would you entertain? Would you cook for Yeah, we'd have other student friends came over and I'd make like, uh, you know, I, I remember making, um, you know, just starting to understand what to like marinating a chicken and grilling it and making a mm -hmm. salad to go with like very 
baby steps <laughs> in the kitchen. Yeah. Uh, but I, I did fall in love with cooking through that. But I was still, I was still in university. I still didn't think it's going to be a career for me. So I finished a master's degree. In what? In comparative literature and philosophy. And I just decided it's not for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's quite I, the it, academic life. I just thought it was very insular. You know, I mm-hmm. thought like I was speaking to like seven people who knew what I was talking about. Mm-hmm. And then the rest of the world knew nothing and wasn't really remotely interested. Mm-hmm. And it just felt esoteric and yeah. uh, it's, it's like <laughs> yeah. Yeah. and then I the opposite happened when I started cooking because all of a sudden everybody's interested right and that dichotomy between somewhere where you really have no one to share your passions with to a world in which you can everybody's interested mm-hmm. is was such a eye-opener for me and and I realized yes I want to try and engage in this conversation and not yeah. in that conversation yeah, yeah. When I came to London in 1997, I haven't made up my mind what I, who I wanted to be and what I wanted to do, but I thought, like, I'm going to take a year off. And I, I went to the Cordon Bleu. and oh, did I, you? Yeah, did and you? I took a course there in Marleybone. In Marleybone, on yeah. that street, yeah. Yeah, Marleybone yeah. Lane. Yeah. yeah. And I did a course there, and I thought, okay, maybe there's something for me there. But I wasn't mm-hmm. yet sure. I did, um, I, I, I did pastry and, and, and savory cooking. Uh, for three months. And then I started uh, working in the evenings. Uh, I worked at the Capital restaurant in oh, Knightsbridge. Yeah. In Knightsbridge, behind Harrods. Yeah, yeah. yeah behind Harrods. It was a, a sis- it was quite a good restaurant, wasn't it? It was really good. They had a Michelin yeah, star, yeah, and I was yeah. an assistant to the pastry chef mm. there. I was working with her. Right into pastry. Right into pastry. Well, yeah. I didn't know anything, so they always mm. throw you into pastry if you yeah. don't know anything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because funny. you're in nobody's yeah. way. Yeah. So I, I loved Did that. And then I met Roly Lee. Yes. And I started working at Kensington Place. Kensington Place. Yeah. What year was that? Uh, that was in 98. Yeah. And Those are the days. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and I worked for him for a couple of years, and I learned a lot. So by that time, you kind of knew this was the career by you that wanted. Time, yeah, I was a pastry chef. Yeah. And I, and Always in pastry with I was Roly do, as well. I was pa- with Roly, I did mostly pastry as yeah. well. I was uh, pa- running the pastry sh- uh, kitchen at some point, and then... I realized I want to specialize in pastry, and then I went to work for Gail at Baker and Spice. What do you think you liked about pastry? I loved how the the just the fact that you got to play with your yeah. dough. For <laughs> I, yeah. I love that, and the magic that happens when you bake. I still I still love that how yeah. one thing turns to another yeah. thing. Yeah, you see like, it. You know, when you person. take a chicken, you put it in the oven, yeah. you get a chicken. But yeah. when you take a cake and you put it in the oven, you get something <laughs> completely different. It's, yeah. It's not the same thing, and I I still love that magic. Yeah. Uh, so I really specialized in baking, and and even when we opened Ottolenghi years later, I was, I was still That's what you, baking. Yeah, yeah. 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 When I went to your kitchen, now it really reminded me of the way we work at Baker and Spice. Like Gail would yeah. come back from, the market with like strawberries and yeah. apricots and quinces, and she said like, there you go, like six boxes, mm. do something mm. with them. Mm. There wasn't a a plan mm. <laughs> there wasn't a there wasn't a recipe or a plan for the day it was just like these things arrived because she saw them and they looked great and we just had to work with what we had yeah. amazing times yeah you, know, that you could you could do that and then and then uh, my f- good friend my ex-partner Noam Barr came back from mm. traveling the world and he said like let's do something together and he was studied business and I was at Baker and Spice at the time and and he said like he said like let's let's open a shop yeah. And um, 
And we decided to do it and it took about a year to make it all happen. And Sammy, Sammy Tamimi, who's our other partner, uh, wasn't quite ready to, to join us. So we, we, we started the process without him and it was supposed to be just a bakery in which I would be baking. Mm-hmm. And, and then when Sammy joined at the very last minute, this was in 2002 when we opened on Ledbury Road in Notting Hill, uh, he joined us and decided, we decided we we're going to have uh, two sides to our offering, which would be freshly made salads and, 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 and savory food. Uh, mirrored by a mountain of cakes mm, <laughs> and pastries. I love those, the meringues and the fruits. <laughs> meringues and, and fruit tarts. colors and, yeah, yeah. And uh, we just thought, like, the same thing that you were doing in restaurants, we thought we can do the same kind of philosophy, apply it mm. in, in, a, in a takeout environment. Mm. You know, we, we'll just cook things freshly every single day and mm. sell it until we run out. And that was... Still, the idea that these these tiny kitchens produce a lot of food, and people come in, and instead of cooking themselves, hmm. we put the food and the cakes out there, yeah. and they come and buy them. But there was there is nothing uh, made off site. There's nothing. We don't buy anything, and we we just cook it all there for you. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. Thank you for taking the light, and you're going to shine it all over the world, and it makes me really happy. I never imagined that I would get the chance to carry this honor and help be a part of this legacy. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. I think what you brought to us, to London, to food, was a sense of exotic which was also so accessible, you know, that you had ingredients that perhaps the words we couldn't pronounce. So we had a dish that was named something we'd never heard of, or we could go in and try one of your beautiful salads and take it home and eat it. Or it just celebrates so much a kind of a joy of, of ingredients, of cooking. Would you call this Middle Eastern? Do you like that phrase or do you um, resist I it? I think I, so... I don't think it's Middle Eastern. There's Middle Eastern sensi- sensibilities in mm-hmm. what we do. So even when Sami and I started cooking and serving food, it wasn't until like when we published the book Jerusalem mm-hmm. in which we talked about our heritage and background, mm-hmm. Sami's Palestinian background mm-hmm. in Jerusalem, my Jewish background in Jerusalem, 
Only that, then people started saying, oh, Middle Eastern mm. Ottolenghi is mm. a Middle Eastern mm. restaurant. Because before we, yeah, we used to have tahini and sumac and all yeah. those things, but yeah. we also used to use miso and soy and, and pomegranates, and, pomegranates and, yeah. and chilies and cumin. <laughs> and yogurt, I know, it's <laughs> Which are spe- not specific to yeah. this region, yeah. but there's something about this kind of little strip of, of the, that, that goes from all the way from Tunisia and Morocco and North Africa, all the way mm. through the Middle East and then through South Asia, all the way mm. to Southeast Asia. Mm-hmm. And it has a certain language that yeah. I think we use. Sometimes you find something in Me- Mexico that speaks mm. the same language, mm. but it's a kind of a sun- sunny temperament. It's, it's chilies, it's garlic, it's citrus. It has these kind of in- intense flavors. So, of course, the Middle East has them, but there's other places that have them, and we just love to borrow from all those parts of the world and and use it and, and build on it. Yeah. Do you travel? Yeah, I travel less now, but I used children. to travel. Oh, yeah. children? My children are seven and ten. Mm-hmm. They're still quite young. And yeah. I, so I, I chose to travel less when they were born because mm. I realized that every time I traveled, if I couldn't take them with me, mm. I would miss them too much. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I find it necessary to go to Italy I, you know it's a kind of um, we go we go to taste the new oil but that for me going back to the source is very important you know to actually go to somebody's house in Rome or in Pisa or in Milan there's a kind of sense of of, of, of also it kind of makes me feel we are you know the connection is strong and those roots are very important you know the identity to Israel I have that in Israel so yeah because my mom's we go to visit her a few times a year, and she lives outside a village, an Arab village uh, called Abu Ghosh, which is on the way from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. And mm. whenever we, we arrive, we go and um, as soon as we arrive with the kids, we go and eat in the local restaurants, mm. and we have those platters of Palestinian yeah. food that I love so much. And then we go to the green grocer and buy the local vegetables, and and I I reconnect, and I yeah. I love that, and it, it I, I find it very familiar. Hmm. in a way that I don't yeah. find anywhere else. You know, everything is very familiar. It's an amazing. I'd like to know what you feel about the food scene or the culture of food in Israel right now. It's something that I'm made aware of all the time, either by friends of mine who go there, friends of mine who live there, and chefs that come into the restaurant hmm. from, you know, I can see them, you know, there's the table of eight <laughs> Israelis and they've come and they they order everything on the menu or they're tasting and in London there are more restaurants. Yeah. How, how did this happen? I don't have a really good explanation, but I'm seeing it everywhere. Like you say, in London there's some fantastic Israeli restaurants, and in America they're really really flourishing, and in Israel itself and. What I find interesting is this thing had not existed 15 or 20 years ago. Mm. When I was living in Israel, there wasn't an original cuisine and those great restaurants. The good restaurants that you could find were, you know, the restaurants of immigrants that have just arrived, arrived, but this didn't formulate. And I think, so when I I did a show for the BBC years ago called Jerusalem on a Plate, and I took Mm. the the director around and showed him, you know, this is this, this cuisine and that cuisine. And then I was trying to formulate actually what was going on there, really understand. And the one thing that occurred to me is that it was just all so new and fresh and nobody felt that they were kind of like um, committed to one way of cooking. There was mm-hmm. something very liberating yeah. about this sense that ev- everything is possible, you know, like in, 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 which is a very Israeli thing. 
first of all, like, you know, there isn't that, there's a laissez-faire kind of like whatever mm -hmm. attitude, which helps. But also nobody felt nothing had, and I'm, I've, I haven't seen, I haven't been to another country that has just so recently been formed. Mm -hmm. But there's that possibility of just like working with all those options has mm -hmm. created these cuisines. And people uh, travel in Israel or they go to Israeli restaurants here and they realize that there's something very original about it. And I think it has to do with the fact that it's not indebted to one part of the world, mm -hmm. one terroir, one cuisine. It's kind of, it's a magpie of cuisines and then it comes together really nicely. Is it strongly Arab-based, though? Do you think there's... I think there is a lot, and that's not being uh, acknowledged enough. Mm. Uh, there is a very, very strong underlying Palestinian mm. um, tradition of cooking that underscores this. And, and often people don't talk about it enough for political reasons, and they don't mention that often enough. I always have to say that I don't think it's a bad thing that Palestinian cooking has become so much part of what is perceived as Israeli cooking, but it's really important to tell that story, yeah, to that, tell that yeah, fact, yeah, yeah. because that's that's very much the basis of so many of those dishes. Not all of them. Mm. Many of them belong to Jewish diasporas mm -hmm. of, of other cultures, but Palestinian is really a massive factor there mm -hmm. in, in the way the new Israeli chefs cook. I think that that's something that we're all looking at right now is acknowledging the history and recognize yeah. where these roots come from, I think. I think. What I had understood in, intuitively when I started publishing cookbooks is that mm -hmm. the best thing you can do is just put it all on paper. You know, mm -hmm. like, where does this come mm -hmm. from? Mm -hmm. Because... First of all, I think it adds depth to a recipe mm. if you can tell a story. Uh, but I think it's also really important to be able to acknowledge the people who are, even if it's an individual, not necessarily a culture, you know, to say, oh, that's, that's this pe person, that idea came from this person or from that person. Because it's, it's just the right thing to do, but yeah. also it, it really helps to create a much more, a deeper um, sense to the recipe, to mm. the dish that you're eating, if you know where it comes from. Yeah. Do you love writing books? You've written, yeah, I you've written what, 10? Uh, 10, 10, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all of my last uh, few books are all co-written, so I've, yeah. I've, I've collaborated with that's someone. That's nice, isn't it? That's what allows the books to stay fresh, the fact mm. that they featured other voices, mm. not just mine. What is your most recent book? <laughs> so my most recent book is The Extra Good Things, um, from the Ottolenghi Test Kitchen. Oh. So it came. It comes out of the Ottolenghi Test Kitchen, and I've written it together with Noor Murad, who's, mm -hmm. um, yeah. she's half Bahraini and half yeah. English, so she's got that kind of, mm. what I have, which is this kind of mix of culture. And it is a book that uh, uh, tries to feature um, what we call extra good things, our condiments, or things mm -hmm. that marinades and dressings and sprinkles and things that, mm are derivatives of a recipe that you could kind of keep to one side and use another day. Because often in our food, we have a, a dressing or a sauce or a marinade. And what we're trying to do is uh, teach people how people used to cook in the old days. So they, they would, instead of cook, starting from scratch, every time you go yeah. into the kitchen, you'd have like a pot of sauerkraut nice. or kimchi yeah. or flavored oil or just something yeah. that is useful already is halfway through it to a meal. So every recipe has a takeout, something that you could keep That's on a nice. shelf or in the fridge that you could use for, yeah. for future. I always like first, you know, to follow a recipe really, really precisely and really do it. And then, you know, to spontaneously change. And I also think when you talk about the number of ingredients, I had a friend who had six children 
And um, one summer she was taking, they were all under the age of sort of, she had twins, and they were under the age of 10. And I said, are you taking all the kids to Martha's Vineyard? She said, no, because I'm just going to take four of them because, you know, it's really hard to stay with a friend when you have six kids. <laughs> but if you only have four, you can stay with anybody, you know. And it was so relative, you know, to the idea that suddenly, you know, so simple. Because you did a book with ten ingredients, didn't you? Yeah, well, ten? I did simple. It has some ingredients. Some yeah. recipes have ten or yeah, less. Yeah, which is like nothing, Which right? for it's me like, is nothing. <laughs> only, only, only ten, ten or, ingredients. Yeah, so, I know. And, and people yeah. say, you know, that why do you need so many ingredients no. and so many exotic ingredients? I said, you don't need anything. It's a choice, you know. But like, there is this expectation these days that every recipe is for everyone mm. and uh, people go can I substitute this if I don't like that I s-? and I always have to say yes you can but why don't you just choose another recipe yeah maybe <laughs> <laughs> exactly but and you're cooking are you cooking at home do you have time to I cook, cook less kids? than I used to yeah. which is yeah. a shame I, I cook mostly on the weekend yeah so we are we uh, as parents to young kids I wouldn't say young parents we don't entertain much yeah. Uh, during the week, but on the weekend we have people over and then we do big weekend meals. It's a question that I ask everyone. If there's a food, we know people that we turn to for comfort and places <laughs> we go for comfort, but if there's something that you would want to eat apart from your mother's chocolate being hidden, I could never could <laughs> get rid of that image on the top shelf, um, is there a food that you reach for when you really need comfort? So uh, I, I have to say that from all the things that I've had, it's things that my father used to cook or my Italian uh, grandmother. She used to make, um, and it's not just because I'm at the River Cafe, I'm saying that. <laughs> it, she used to make gnocchi alla romana. Ah, yeah. Yeah, and it's the one smell that I have that as, you know, w- people talk too much about, you know, those, you know, moments uh, of childhood, but... This is really one that has, stands so strong in my mind, in my head, that is the thinly um, spread uh, semolina gnocchi on a tray dotted with butter and cheese, and it would go under the grill and all. And since she, they did get great cheese from Italy and they had red parmigiano, and they, she would put that under the grill and it would just melt. And that kind of semolina, mm-hmm. soft, you know, milky with uh, a grated cheese melted cheese on top it's just it's just such a childhood favor and that is definitely the one that brings the most comfort to me and i've never managed to do it as not even remotely as good as she does i know well we'll try and make it for if i'd known uh we would have put it on the menu do you have it on the menu sometimes yeah oh yeah yeah especially we we have it on very often when we have white truffles Mm. because it's one of those delicious recipes which you can if you it's delicious without white truffles and but it does take because it's like it's almost kind of like a cheese souffle that's it? right you know, it's like a cheese souffle the, but with semolina and they are so delicious so we're going to go ahead and have lunch in the river cafe now without gnocchi romana but the next time we do we'll definitely have <laughs> thank it together you. and, and I'll i hope you it's soon it. yes let's do it thank you thank so you much thank you very much thank great time The River Cafe Lookbook is now available in bookshops and online. It has over 100 recipes beautifully illustrated with photographs from the renowned photographer Matthew Donaldson. The book has 50 delicious and easy to prepare recipes, including a host of River Cafe classics that have been specially adapted for new cooks. The River Cafe Lookbook, recipes for cooks of all ages. Ruthie's Table 4 is a production of iHeartRadio and Atomize Studios. 
For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth. No matter who you are, mental health challenges can affect you, and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at BetterHelp.com. That's BetterHelp.com. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.